1 Kings chapter 18, while you're turning there, title of the message is Rebuilding the Place of Prayer. Rebuilding the Place of Prayer. We're going to talk about prayer tonight and what prayer should look like. I know what we got in our minds if I were to say we're going to have a prayer meeting, you might have an idea of what that means. If I asked you to pray for something, people say, oh, I think I know what that means. So let me show you in the Bible what it ought to look like. <clears throat> if you really want to pray, if you really want to get answers to prayer. 1 Kings chapter 18. Most of a person's life is broken. Now we can put on a good show, but you'll go through life carrying burdens, going through dark valleys, have troubles just come like waves. And we may put on a smile, but our life is broken. And we get the idea that that Everybody else, man, they've got the Hollywood lifestyle, which I wouldn't want, by the way. But we think that everybody's, everybody out there is, man, they're all happy. They're all doing fine. Look at their Facebook. Man, it's all wonderful, happy. It's all, they have no problems. It's a lie. Most of a person's life, if we would be honest, is broken. It's in rubble. It's in pieces, especially your prayer life. You may... You may be honest and say you wish you had a better prayer life, and that would be a good thing. But you're going to have to look at most of our prayer lives are going to have to be rebuilt. <clears throat> Nehemiah's entire homeland was in ruins. We're talking about Israel. And that's why we're looking at the book of Nehemiah. We're going to go there in a moment. Because there are some comparisons in this man's life and in what he attempts to do that applies to the Christian life. Nehemiah's homeland, entire nation was ruined, covered with rubble. And he, he, he could have, see what I got it. He could have just got on a horse and raced to, to Jerusalem and start rebuilding all the ruined walls and the streets and the buildings. He could have just done that. You know, when, when, there's, a, when there's a problem, a disaster, there are some people who just want to, man, just bolt and go and fix it. That's a good thing. But Nehemiah knew he needed to pray. He knew the most important thing he could do. Now, you got to go rebuild walls. I mean, honestly, if, 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 you, uh, if you've got um, uh, a problem in your life, you're going to have to deal with that problem. But you've got to first get with God. You've got to first get his help because you're going to wear out, you're going to burn out, you're going to wipe out. He needed to pray. And prayer is not complicated, you know, honestly. Uh, you don't need prayer beads. You don't need yarmulke hats. You know what a yarmulke hat is? You don't need candles or special rugs. Um, in reality, false, empty, aimless, repetitious praying does nothing. You can have all of the environment. You can have rows and rows of candles. You can have every word of the Lord's Prayer memorized. And you can add decades upon decades of the rosary and of every prayer you can imagine and it still be aimless and worthless. But when you have righteous, fervent, passionate, promised-based praying, you can accomplish much. You can accomplish much. Now, I got to go here. First, first, first Kings chapter 18, I'll show you an example of it. And it's throughout the Bible. There are so many, whenever you study prayer in the Bible, God shows you a... a, a an angle on prayer that you need to learn from. This is, this is going to illustrate it before we get into Nehemiah. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 30, and Elijah, he's <clears throat> pretty well all by himself. Everybody has turned away from God, and everybody is totally obsessed with their own ideas of what religion is and how to, how to live. Elijah said unto all the people, come near unto me. And all the people came near unto him. And notice what he did. He repaired the altar of the Lord that was what? He knew that what Israel needed was God. And he knew that it, 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 it starts with him. It starts with him drawing a circle and saying, I've got to fix right here. And he got everybody's attention and says, and this place of prayer has to be fixed in every person's life. Verse 31, and Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the son of Jacob, unto whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be thy name. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two measures of seed. So he's got this moat around the altar. The altar is just a pile of stones that were laid up where he would put a sacrifice. And he had a, he had a challenge to the, um, to the prophets of Baal. He said, look, let's see whose God answers prayer here. What a challenge. And the prophets of Baal had been praying for over six hours and nothing happened. And he says, I'm going to make it hard for God to answer prayer because I need God to light the fire under my sacrifice and, and, and prove that he's there. And so he, make, he starts pouring water all over it. It says, verse 33, and he put the wood in the order and he cut the bullock in pieces and laid him, the, uh, uh, the sacrifice, the bull, on the wood and said, fill four barrels with water. That's a lot of water. Pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And he said, do it the second time. And they did it the second time. And he said, do it the third time. And they just drenched everything the third time. And the water round about the altar and filled the trench all with the water. Verse 36, and it came to pass the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, what's he doing? Now he's praying. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, I'm just thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that thou art the God, the Lord God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then... The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was on the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He's the God. The Lord, He is the God. So you notice, <clears throat> before Elijah prayed, what did he do? He, replayed the, he repaired the place of prayer. And there's too many of us who know we need to pray, but we've never made a place to pray. If you ever had a place, maybe beside your bedside, or maybe with your wife, or maybe in your car, not while you're driving. Do not close your eyes while you're driving. But, but you have a place of prayer. You need to go back to the place and say, you know, I need to rebuild this thing. Before I ever try to attempt some great task for God or some important thing I need to do in my life, I need to have a place, a rock-solid place of prayer. Father, I pray that you bless these thoughts this morning from your word to every person meet the need. And the need is great. The need's big. But the need is first for us to be able to spend time with you. That's why we were created. Everything grabs our attention. Everything pulls us in 47 different directions. May we settle on one direction first before we face anything else. And that's time with you. You sure have given us all your attention. You are, are so faithful in everything you do for us. The least we can do is to cry unto you when we need you. And may we do that all day, every day. Help us to rebuild the place of prayer and help every person look in their hearts and say, you know, Lord, I, I don't even know you. I go to church. I pray prayers. But I don't know you, and I don't know who I'm talking to. I don't know if they're even being heard in heaven. Lord, that person, those people in this room, may they understand that Jesus died for them. He's the way. He's the door. He's our access before your throne, Father. We have no right. We have no way to get right before you except by Jesus Christ. My own goodness, my own efforts will never be good enough. So we have Jesus. Let somebody cry out to that name this morning and trust him for their salvation and their new life in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last week, there, if you'll go to Nehemiah, now Nehemiah is kind of just before Job and Psalms and Proverbs. Nehemiah, <clears throat> there are two books we're actually looking at this year, Nehemiah and Ezra. They are books about building and rebuilding. And Nehemiah begins with great affliction. In verse 3 it says, They said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction. That means they were hurting. And, you know, we, we're so used to it on television. We see somebody in Syria and they're starving or they're fleeing from the war and stuff. And we go, oh, yeah. And we don't understand affliction because we're so disconnected by a little television. And we see it so much, but... 
This really hurt and affected Nehemiah to hear that the people were in affliction. And it begins that way, but it doesn't end that way. The book ends in great joy. It's a great book. You know, our tears and our burdens and our sorrows that we have to go through sometimes are not the end. They may, they may be for a while, but joy will come in the morning. Now, God was preparing a man named Nehemiah, a cupbearer, for an impossibly large task by giving him some very bad news. And we, I already mentioned it. He finds out that just as a little remnant of people who had been freed from their slavery and allowed to go back to the land of their forefathers, back to the land of Israel, was only a remnant, and they were in affliction, and they were constantly being taken advantage of by all the nations around him. And when he heard that bad news, he had to have a right response. And we talked about this last week, to that bad news. Verse 4 says, And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and I wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Uh, it affected him. And that's the way you start. Now, just, just for those of you who were here last week, this is the private journal of Nehemiah. He's writing this from his heart. He's describing this, and God guided everything, put it in the Bible so that we could sense the heart of somebody who was hurt. And that's a good thing. I, I need things to affect me. Amen. I don't want to be cold and hard and, and uncaring. And here we see Nehemiah affected. And the right response is that he stopped everything, even though he had a very busy schedule as a king's cupbearer. He's one of the most intimate uh, 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 counselors of King um, Artaxerxes. And he was always there hearing all of the conversations going on. He was one of the most trusted men in, in the king's life. And, but he wasn't going to go and stand before the king that moment. He stopped everything. He wept. He mourned. And he fasted for several days. And then he prayed. And that's how you start. I have, I have observed that most of a person's life is lived with very little need for God. Have you noticed that in your own life? And that's why there's so little stability in people's lives. Everything today is being cared for by the government. Why do you need God? Go to the Dole office. Go to some new entitlement office. Write to your TD. That's all you need. That is not what you need. You need God. And when we get to where we think almighty government's going to take care of us, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Nehemiah was destined to succeed, not because of his position as cupbearer, which was a very powerful position, not because of his money that he probably had amassed, not because of the authority he held as the king's counselor, or even his popularity in the court. You know why Nehemiah was destined to succeed? Because he depended on God. Amen. So, when we find Nehemiah here, now he's going to the next verse in verse 5, we see him pray, and I want to show you, God actually describes what prayer looks like, and it's awesome. What does prayer actually look like? I'm going to read through these five verses here, verses 5 to 11, six verses, and let you see it, and then we'll go back through it. Verse 5, and I remember it says, I prayed before the God of heaven, verse 5, and I said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God, that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants. And I confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, have not kept thy commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou hast commanded thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me, and keep my commandments, and do them, though, they were, though there were of you cast out into the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence, and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people, whom thou hast redeemed, and thy great power, by thy great power, and by thy strong hand. O oh Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, 
into the prayer of thy servants. There's more than just him praying. Who desire to fear thy name and prosper. I pray thee, thy servant, this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer. I know there's a lot of reading there, but I want you to see, starting off here in verse 5, what does prayer look like? And I want to say it looks what like what a beggar looks like. When you see Christians normally pray way too posh. I mean, God in heaven. That's how we pray. That's how we feel that we have to pray. I mean, we're, we, we feel like we're talking to an equal. We feel like, you know, God, I'm doing you a favor. That's how we normally talk to God. We try to work on all the right words. We try to say things the right way. There's no word straight from the heart. Let me tell you, God could care less if you figured out all the words you want to talk. He just want to know, are you sharing your heart with him? You'll never find people praying the Lord's Prayer in the Bible because it's just an example. What you find are people praying from the heart, and they're all messed up, muddled up words. Amen. That's prayer. But we're way too posh. We're way too timid. You know, if I stop by and I say, how you doing? I know I'm going to be there 20 minutes. Because you'll talk all day, and I'm not finding fault with you. I'm just telling you, we, we love to talk. If somebody asked you directions, you'd stop everything. Oh, let me tell you how to get from here to there. But if I said, hey, let's pray, you go, oh, I don't know what to say. What? You can talk for two years, and you can't talk to God? We're way too timid, far too afraid to just talk. We clam up when we think of praying. Uh, I don't know what to say. We pray way too little. I mean, we pray very rarely. Probably, I would guess, most people in this room, I wish I could say different, but I would say most people in this room pray probably twice a week. Not every day. Certainly not the morning of every day before they headed out. We pray way too little, wouldn't you agree? We pray way too brief. It has been studied. People have, they've taken... Thousands and thousands of interviews, and they find out that most Christians pray less than five minutes a day. Wow. Would you talk to your wife less than five minutes a day? I didn't ask you if you do. If you do, I've got counseling starting tonight. Would you talk to your kids five minutes a day? Huh? Talk to God less than five minutes a day? We pray way too brief, and people... You know what I found? I think people really don't have to pray. Nobody. I, I figured this out a long time ago. Nobody learns to pray until they have to. And I decided I have to. Nehemiah here looked just like a beggar when he started to pray. You know what happens when you're desperate? You'll do just about anything. And you don't care what you look like. Here, Nehemiah no longer looked like an important king's counselor walking around chin high full of pride, I am a counselor of the king. He relies on me for advice. I stand next to the king. I'm a good-looking guy. I, I have all of the attention of everybody. You know, when he starts to pray, he's on his face. He is a beggar, and that's okay. He uses a word there in Jeremiah, no, in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 5. He says, and said, I beseech thee. To beseech is to beg. He's a desperate beggar on his knees. He already was weeping. He already was mourning. He had already stopped eating. And he started to beg God for help. And I think when you beg somebody, what you're doing is you're trying to pull them to you. That's what a beggar does. A beggar doesn't say, oh, can you spare some change? <laughs> you know what a beggar does? I'm starving. And when you pray and you just say, Lord, if you can spare two minutes, I kind of need to talk to you about a problem. Is that how you want to pray? Or do you want to pull him to you? Talk to him like a beggar. You say, that's so demeaning. Yeah, because in the West, we don't talk like that. But if you were hungry, you'd do anything. And if you get hungry for God, blessed are ye when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus said. Nehemiah here looked just like a beggar. Because he was desperate. I, I don't think he did this on occasion. As a matter of fact, Nehemiah was used to praying this way. 
12 times he mentions praying. He's used to praying. He's, because he doesn't just pray once and then forget about it for a few days or a few weeks. He's praying constantly. He says, I need you. I need you again. I need you again. It was quite normal for him in the midst of an incredibly busy life. And don't you tell me, well, I've got so much going on. I'm too busy. I've got 18 kids. I've got all this stuff going on. And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I just got my career. You're never too busy to pray when you're desperate. Pray. In spite of all the obstacles you may have to overcome. You know what Daniel did when it became illegal for him to pray? He prayed anyway. When it was lunchtime, and instead of him going home and having his chicken wrap, he opened the window towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his face, and he prayed knowing that every eye outside of that house was watching to see if he would pray against the king and against the law. And he says, i got to pray. Make time. <clears throat> There's never, there has never been anything accomplished great in history without prayer. There have been no great revivals without prayer. You cannot bring home wayward sons and daughters without prayer. It is because not just of John Wilberforce and great numbers of Christians facing down governments of England and America and, and freeing slavery. You don't do it through war and through government policy only. You do it by God's people on their face begging God to intervene to free nations full of slaves like they did two and three hundred years ago. Amen and amen. It's because God's people say, this is serious. We've got to start in prayer. Folks, I'm telling you, Ireland is on the brink of removing the Eighth Amendment, and if it's going, you've got to, got to march. You've got to write to your TDs and say, keep the Eighth Amendment. But let me tell you this, we better get God's help because nothing great happens without prayer. Prayer has brought down wicked empires and raised up the freest of nations. Are you willing to start begging the God of heaven? Asking him to help you do the impossible, to see the impossible done. You know, we we kind of we 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 get on our we kind of look nice. You know, we look really polished and everything. You know, when we pray, but you know what you're doing? You're taking the place of a beggar. You're getting on your knees. You're closing your eyes, and you're at the mercy of someone above you. And that is a beggar. Don't ever think, well, you know, I've got prayer all figured out. You know, I just come up with my list and I say, Lord, here it is. And then I go on my way. You know what you're doing? You're doing nothing. Start off with the right approach to God as a beggar. Secondly, prayer sounds a lot like worship. Listen to Nehemiah, what he was saying while he prayed. He was not constantly complaining or whinging about his troubles but he was worshiping. And when you pray, you ought to make it part of your prayer. Jesus said it when he gave the, his example of prayer. He said, start off this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, what's the next words? Hallow, holy, awesome, amazing is thy name. He's worshiping. Worshiping. Worship has got to be part of our prayers. Yeah, there are many tears. There's weeping while you pray sometimes, but there's also worship supposed to be going on while you pray. What kind of a God are we talking to when we close our eyes and pray? Well, Nehemiah knows who he's talking to. Look there again, verse 5. Let me just notice these things. You might underline them. And he said, I beseech thee, and then he worships these, O Lord God of heaven. Listen first. The great God. That's second. And terrible God. By the way, terrible was an older word. We only use terrible for one meaning. But if you ever look it up, God is not a terrible God. Okay? But in our modern society, we think if something's terrible, it's like somebody gives you a cup of tea and goes, that's terrible. But the word terrible there used to mean, and if you look at the dictionary, it still means terrifying. God's not just the old man upstairs you kind of talk to when you, when you need a few extra bob. He's the fearsome God. He's the terrifying. Don't mess, don't cross him. You worry about, hey, 
How many of you are driving down the road and you're going 130, 140? And then you notice along the left side, you see a white car with a blue stripe and lights on the top. What happens to you from the top of your head to the bottom of your toe? Fear. Amen? Did they see me? Hit the brake, whatever. Why would you think that God has more authority to scare you than God? Amen. This is the terrifying God. It goes on. The God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. I mean, I th- Nehemiah is talking to the only God in heaven. David said this in Psalm 73. He says, Whom have I in heaven but thee, O Lord? And there is none on earth that I desire beside thee. Who are you trying to talk to now? Oh, I'm, talking to talk, I'm trying to talk to my grandmother. You're wasting your time. Well, I'll talk to Mary. You're wasting your time. There's only one person who hears your prayers in heaven. What's his name? That's Jesus. I, the only God in heaven. Listen to Isaiah 45. Go to Isaiah. You're in Jeremiah. Go to the right. This is just too good to miss. Isaiah 45 and verse 5. Hold in your place there in Nehemiah. Isaiah 45, verse 5. Verse 5 and 6 here, Isaiah 45, verse 5 and 6. I am the Lord. This is God talking. There is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. I have clothed you, I've built you, I've designed you, I've helped you, even though you haven't known me. I have done all this that they may know from the rising of the sun and from, from, and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. So who else? Who are you going to call? As <laughs> Ghostbusters said. Who are you going to call? Who are you going to talk to? The only God of heaven. He's worshiping. He calls him the great God. You know, when you think of great, you think of, you're supposed to think of immense boundless, unlimited, wonderful, amazing. Not, not a tiny God. I like, well, I won't go there. A, a man-made kind of God is not a great God, but the great God of heaven. Think about it. Nehemiah would look up to the stars, look up at the Milky Way, and he'd see planets and comets racing across the sky over the nights, and he sat there and he went, you're the God that made all this. He's a great God. That's worship. That's worship. He calls him the terrifying God. Now, the modern versions, if you've got a uh, HIV or a, a NIV and all these things, all they put in there is the word awesome, and they leave the word terrible or terrifying out, and that's wrong. They want to take away the fear of God. Let me tell you, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You try to approach God without actually knowing how serious it is, you're going you're gonna to cross some lines, man. <clears throat> if he really is the only God and the infinite almighty God, he's terrifying. But he's the promise-keeping God. Deuteronomy, holding your place still in Nehemiah, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 7 in verse 9. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God. And then what do the next three words say? Say it with me. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's a lot of kids. (laughs) He's a promise-keeping God. I hope you're glad that God keeps all of his promises. Now, I have not ever been able to keep all my promises. Is that true with you? God, if he makes a promise, he cannot lie. He can't change his mind. He can't go, you know what, I really don't want to do that. He's a promise-keeping God. The city of Jerusalem was in ruins, and the nation was broken, all because the people had sinned to God for hundreds of years. God had warned them and had told them over and over, trouble's coming. If you don't get right with God, trouble's coming down the tracks. And they ignored him. And God would write, as, as it is in Deuteronomy chapter 
27, 28, 29, 30 chapters of warnings that if you turn away from God, if you try to live your own way, if you think that you can do things better than, than my way, and you just go off and you, 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 you um, uh, follow your friends and you follow your heart and you do everything that the world's doing, it's going to come down on you heavy. But if you ever find yourself so far away and you turn back, I can bring you all the way back home. God put both promises in there. One was a warning that trouble would come, that judgment would come, that chastening would come. But if you would just humble yourself and turn, just turn to him and say, I'm tired of this. I'm sick and tired of banging my head against this dead end. Trying to fill a hole that, that is, is a bottomless hole. The Lord says, I'll take you right back. God promises and he keeps those promise. And, and he calls that back there in Nehemiah. He says, you're the, you're the God that keeps covenant and mercy. And, then he, and I love that word, the merciful part. That's the best part. You know what mercy is? It's kindness. I mean, you know, there are times when you just don't want to be kind to somebody. Because they ain't been kind to you. Amen? You know what God does? God says, I want to be kind. I want to have mercy towards those who don't deserve it. Never take God's mercy for granted. It is available to absolutely everyone on this planet, but it's not unconditional. You know what most people say? Ah, when I die, I'll, I'll face God then. No, not like you think. God is very merciful. He's letting you breathe and live. But one of these days, if you're not saved, if you're not born again, like Jesus said, every man, woman, and child needs to be, if you're not right, with God and washed from your sin and forgiven of all that record against you, you'll stand before God as judge and you're doomed. Amen. Mercy says, you know what? I don't want to have to judge you. God says, I'd rather forgive you. I'd rather show my kindness on you, but you're going to have to let somebody else pay the price, and that's what Jesus did. That's mercy of God. God's mercy is available to three kinds of people. It's available only to those who want it. He doesn't just say, ah, I'll be nice to you. There's, there's Charlie, and I'll just be nice to her. Bill, no. Uh, you know, God doesn't do that. Always pick on Bill. God's mercy is available to those who love him. You know, I'm bothered by people who think they're going to heaven, and they really don't look forward to it. They really don't have any time that they spend just saying, Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving a wretch like me. What a strange thing for people to go to church and go to church and go to church and go through the motions and, and, and have traditions and ceremonies, and their heart is on the match. Their heart is on their bank account. Their heart is everywhere else. You know, God's mercy is on somebody who just loves him. And you know, you don't have to be good to love God. You get that? Did anybody get that? You don't have to be perfect to love God. Your perfection and your sinlessness and your it matters nothing. Just would you realize that God first loved you while you were yet a sinner? Christ died for you. And it's available to anyone who decides to do what God says. You see, if I need God, I got to turn around. I got to say, Lord, I've lived my own way. I've done my own thing. I've reaped my own problems. And I'm tired of it. I'd like to try your way now. It's available to those who say, I'll live by God's rules. I live by God's way. That's the Christian life. Not that you are perfect, but you want to live better. You want to live like Jesus. By the way, those people are not perfect people. They're sinners. Matthew 9, Jesus was, was, was sitting there eating with, with, with publicans and sinners and harlots, and they're all there gathered with them, and they're all just enjoying a meal, and the Pharisees are looking, going, how can you eat with sinners? And Jesus said, because I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Can't help you guys. You don't think you need me. These guys need me. And there's great mercy on them. Worship. We lack that in our prayer. Most time, what do we do? We go right to the list. I know God, this is what I need. You're talking to him like Santa. Talk to him like God. 
And there's a lot of confessing going on in a, in a real prayer time. Look at verse 6. And he says it these ways, still chapter Nehemiah 1.6, Let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open, that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant. Why is, why is he saying, Lord, I want you to hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> why is he saying that? Look at what he says. Which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which not they have sinned, but we have sinned against thee. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee. You ever been in an argument and somebody says, you, <laughs> you have not, and you never, and whew, is that a fair fight? No, 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 the two of you need to go, start going, you know, we both have responsibility in this problem. Verse 7 says, We have dealt very corruptly against thee, God, and have not kept the commandments, nor, thy, nor the statutes, nor the judgments, which thou hast commanded thy servant Moses. Nehemiah here desperately needs God to hear him. He's humbled himself to the place of like a beggar. He has focused his heart and his mind on worshiping God. He knows he's not finished. He spends his time mainly confessing. He didn't go to the priest, didn't go to the pastor, didn't even go to his best friend. You see, there was something big that was holding back God from answering. You know what it is? It's sin. Go to Isaiah. I know you're in Nehemiah. We've gone back and forth, but do it anyway. Go to the right, find Isaiah 59. I'm not going to ask you, but think about it for a minute. How many of you have spent so much time asking God, begging God, please God, help God, and nothing happens? You ever wonder why? Isaiah chapter 59, in verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened. It didn't shrink over the last few hundred years. The Lord's 59.1, Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Let me be real plain. The way we live, the way we treat God affects his closeness to us. Amen. You turn your back on God, you know what God does? He goes, okay. And he turns his back on you. What? That's very rude. Uh, who started it? Well, I'm not praying today. And the Lord says, well, I'm not talking to you either then. You know what God is? He's like a mirror to you. Bible says, draw nigh to God. And what does the Bible say he will do? And he will draw nigh to you. So most of the time when God's silent to me, it's because I've been silent to him. Because I've put walls up between me and him. Because I have, I have hurt him. And so he says, okay. And then we go, Lord, where are you? Hmm. When people are rude to you, do you just bless them? You should, but do you find it hard? Hmm. Do you know when you are so independent from God, you know what it does? It quiets him down. Matthew chapter 13, it says Jesus came into villages and he could, do not, he could not do many wonder, mighty works there. Why? Because they're unbelief. They didn't need him. So he just went on his way to the next town. And you know, the Lord comes into your life and he says, I got some, I've got some abilities. I can help you. And you go, I don't need you today. He says, okay. <laughs> and then you look around and you go, boy, nothing's going right. What's wrong? Where are you, God? And the Lord said, you told me you didn't need me. The way we live, our attitudes, our actions push God away. Do you know if you have anything in your life more important than God, it's an idol. Try and get you, if you're married, gentlemen, try and have a woman more important to you than your wife and see how long you live. Amen. And yet we know that, but we don't think about, well, that might hurt God if I'm sitting there and I'm worshiping my team. I'm worshiping Beyonce. I'm worshiping my, uh, 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 my movie star or my... 
uh, entertainment value uh, channel and all these things. You know, when you got something, you say, you know what, I want to stay home and watch and binge watch Netflix instead of being church. You know what you're doing? You're telling God, I don't really like you. And then we wonder, how come you're not answering my prayer? Well, I'm not going to pray anymore because God doesn't hear me. Did you ever wonder why? In Israel, at the time when Israel was taken captive, 160 years earlier than Nehemiah, when Israel was taken away captive, it was because there was sexual perversion on every street corner. We can't comprehend that, and yet it's true in our, everybody's phones, what 14-year-olds are talking about. Israel, the nation, actually worshipped sex itself. Worshipped it. Sounds like today. They worshipped the goddesses of sex, and there was a bunch of them. And they had abandoned God's culture and rules for life. They provoked God. They pushed him to the point where he had to turn around chasing them, not answer their prayers, but he was against them. So don't get all upset when God doesn't answer your prayers. There is a good reason why he's not. And it's usually our fault. So what does Nehemiah do? Before he ever decides to go to Jerusalem and start clearing away the rubble in the city, he starts to clear away the rubble in his heart. Amen. Got a problem between you and somebody else? Fix your heart first. I'm going to go straighten them out. Whoa, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> straighten yourself out first. Amen? Amen. How do we clear away sin? It only takes a few points. If you're going to clear away sin in your life so that you start getting answers to prayer, number one, you need to include yourself. Did you notice he kept saying we and I? He didn't say they brought all this trouble on Israel. They were wicked. My, it was my father and my forefathers that were all against. No, he says, and I've got the same heart as they did. I have the same trouble with sins. I have the same temptations, and I fail just as much as they did. Include yourself. If you're ever... You want to clear away sin in your life, look at yourself first. Secondly, humble yourself. He says right there in verse 6, he says, Let now thine ear be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of the king's servant. Is that what he was known as? To everybody else, he was the king's counselor. But when he talks to God, he says, I'm your servant. I don't care if I get fired by the king. I don't care if I get cast into a lion's den or whatever. I serve you. The Bible says this in Colossians 3. It says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. For you serve the Lord Christ. So next time you're uh, there at the office or you're at school and you're doing somebody else's bidding, realize you're doing it because you're serving the Lord. That's how you start to clear up. You say, Lord, I, I, before I ever try to get right with my teacher or my boss, my employer, or my wife, or my husband, or my, my parents, or my banker, or my tax man, whoever I need to get right with, I need to settle. I'm your servant, and I will live for you and not for them. Third, agree with God's judgment. Never once do you see Nehemiah saying, you know, it's kind of unfair what's happened to Israel. It's kind of unfair the fact that you've got us in captivity here over in Persia. It's not fair, God. You know what he says? You're right what you did to us. Whatever is in my life, instead of me complaining, I say, Lord, you know what you're doing. That's a good place to start. You see, we have what's called the root of bitterness running around in our heart. Most of the time, we're angry at God. We're angry at life. We're just... I got dealt a bad hand. I've been not treated right. I've been uh, victimized. I've been abused. I've been, yes, all of that is true. But when you stand before God, you got to realize he knew it. And probably I deserved most of it. But instead of me trying to fix all of those things before I finally can, can live, I'll just come to God and I'll say, Lord, I'll trust you. You knew what I've been through. You've allowed it, and I'm just going to trust you that you can get me out of it. Amen. That's, that's instead of saying, you know, here's somebody that's been smoking for 50 years, like your grandparents and your parents. And there they are. They're struggling with emphysema, struggling just to breathe, living in an oxygen tent, walking around with an oxygen tank. You say, how terrible. Just be honest. They brought it on themselves. And when they live angry at God, <laughs> 
this is unfair. <laughs> now you say, I'm not mocking. No, I'm trying to make it real to you, saying that's the result of their own decision. Instead of them taking up bitterness, they need to go, I brought it on myself. You know, if you want to get, if you want to get answers to prayer, quit, quit, quit fighting the chastening hand of God and say, Lord, you got me. You win. And then accept the troubles is right. Now, that's a hard thing to be able to say, you know what, Lord, everything's right. You're a good God. And if you had to do this to humble me and to get me this way because of my stubbornness, I'm glad you did. And all of this, you know what he's doing? He's trying to get right with God. He's not trying to make God come down to his level and do things his way. He's saying, Lord, I just want to do everything your way from now on. And your ways are always good. And then you can then, then believe that God can forgive and save and heal and repair anything. How do we know? How can we know? that he will actually forgive and repair what is broken in our life. 1 John. Go to 1 John, chapter 1, all the way to the right. 1 John, chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John, chapter 1, and verse 9 says, If we confess our sins... I never tell you to confess it to a priest. I never tell you to, to even confess it to anybody else. You talk to God and you open up and you pour out all of that stuff you've been holding on to and uh, not dealing with. When you confess it to God, He is faithful and just to what? He is consistent to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? Is that a good verse? That's a good verse. So, how do we know that God can forgive and do and, 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 and meet our need? Because when we do all that, God will forgive and start over with us. His mercies are how new? They're new every morning. We move on to one more thought here, remembering. Back there in Nehemiah, verse 8. I think this is very cute. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 8. And, and listen to it. I want you to see if you can catch it. Verse, verse 8 says, Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they were there were of you cast into unto the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet will I, speaking of God, gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. What is he saying? Lord, would you please remember your promise? Now that's kind of, I think that's funny. To tell God, uh, would you remember what you promised? I think it's hilarious because does God need to be reminded? <laughs> You'll find Nehemiah using this word over and over, probably nine or ten times. He says, remember, O Lord, remember, O Lord. I, I, I think he's like, God, I hope you haven't forgotten it's as if Nehemiah feels that he needs to remind God about the other half of the scriptures because he's like, Lord, I know about the promise that we're going to reap what we sow. But what about the other? You remember the other half, don't you? That you will bring us back if we get right with you. God does not need to be reminded. But he doesn't, be in, doesn't mind being reminded if it shows that we are remembering. Think about that for a minute. You imagine a little child going up. Daddy, remember, mommy's not feeling well, so you're supposed to fix breakfast? <laughs> now, it, it, as a child, the kid is kind of hungry and desperate. You remember, Daddy, I need you. <laughs> well, that's how you talk to God. And, and usually the dads need to be reminded, amen? But not God. In reality, it is we who need to be constantly reminded of an open door back to God. I'm so thankful for Christmas on our calendars. Aren't you glad we still celebrate Christmas? Aren't you glad Easter still has a shadow of the resurrection in it? Aren't you glad that rainbows still cross the sky and remind us of the promises of God and that He keeps His promises? Hey, all of these things 
cause us to remember that there's a God who intervenes and can help. Nehemiah reminds himself of a great invitation to sinful people. That the God who promised chastening also promises forgiveness if his people repent and come back to him. How do you remember 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, God says, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will heal their land. Nehemiah is remembering all the promises of God. You know, God's eyes are upon his people and his ears are open under their prayers when we finally clear away all the things that come between us. And he clings to the promise that God's going to restore Jerusalem. Chapter 1 is the foundation chapter for the rest of the book. If Nehemiah just heard about all the troubles in, in Jerusalem and in, Jer in, in Judah... And, 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 the, and his homeland and everything, and just got on a horse and went over there and tried to fix the thing, it would have failed and gone into the dust of history as, as never even being mentionable. But because he says, before I ever attempt anything, before I ever try to do something so impossible, I better get right with God. I better find out, God, would you help me? I have this great burden, but I don't want to do it without you. I don't want to do it ahead of you. I don't want to do it where it's just me. I need you. And that sets the pace for the rest book. And when you've got a problem, whether it is illness or whether it is a burden that is weighing you down and it's got to be fixed, let me tell you, God is driving you to the place of prayer so that you can get the power you need and the help you need to get through. And he clings to the promises that God would destroy Jerusalem, God would restore Jerusalem. Now, let's apply that to our situation. Whatever you're going through, Verse 10, watch him, and we'll finish with this. What have we done? We've watched him humble himself, take on the role of a beggar before God. He's not just asking, he is beseeching, he's begging, he's desperate. He's confessing, he's getting everything he can think of right between him and God. Now, he spent more time worshiping, more time confessing, so that when he gets to the time where he has a request, he just asks, and it's done. Watch it. Verse 10. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee. This is what he's asking. Let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servants and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. And here's my request. Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, Grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king, for I was the king's cupbearer. Here, Nehemiah is brief and to the point. Again, you don't have to pray long. When Nehemiah, sorry, when I, when uh, Elijah prayed, the other, the prophets of Baal and the other religion people were praying for six hours, and nobody heard them. And Elijah just bowed his head closed his eyes, raised his hand, and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, show that you are God. Show them you still answer prayer. And it came. He didn't have to use flowery words. He didn't have to impress anybody. He just asked because he had rebuilt the place of prayer. He had his own heart right. He saw what people needed, and he got the answer. And here's Nehemiah brief and to the point. He now has the authority. By the way, John 15, 7 says, if ye abide in me, and my words just abide in you. They don't, they're not picked up on Sunday and then put away, but they stay with you all week. Then you shall ask what you will, and it'll be done unto you. He now had the authority. And what was his impossible prayer list? One, please hear me. And 1 John says, if we know that he hears us, we know we have what we ask. God, please hear me. Secondly, would you do the impossible for us? I think you like doing the impossible. <laughs> if it wasn't impossible, then I could do it. Do the impossible. Rebuild a city. Now, why would God choose to describe the rebuilding of the city? Because we need to see that our problems are just as impossible. Our family situations, our relationships breaking down, our, our, our finances, our health, whatever they are, we've got to see they're impossible. 
and we meet God. Do the impossible for us. And then he uses the words, prosper me. Boy, hadn't that phrase been misused today. Prosper me? Oh, oh, oh. He's not asking God to make him prosper us. Is it to be, or to be rich? What a wicked, selfish, carnal generation only thinks prosperity means health and wealth. That's not true prosperity. The Bible, when he says prosper, he says make this successful. Make this work. Strengthen me. Enable me as I attempt this impossible thing. And I need you. <laughs> and he leaves the, 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 the hardest for the last. He says, I need you to convince the king to let me go. To give me authority over in Jude. And to give me all the money I need to be able to finish the job. I mean, think about it. He's going to rebuild a city. He needs masons. He needs brick and mortar. He needs tools. He needs um, uh, people. He needs so much stuff. And he says, I don't know. I don't have any kind of money to throw at stuff like that. I need the king to pay for it. <laughs> Ladies, this is how you approach your husband when you need a big expense. <laughs> Remember, he's, he's got a very important job. And he couldn't just quit his job. He couldn't just move to Jerusalem. He was an appointee of the king. He had been called by the king to do that job. He needed the king's permission to step down and take a sabbatical, take a break, and go do something else. So he says, please let the king, let me take a break for a while. And it turned out to be years. By the way, he couldn't just go do it on his own. He needed the king's permission. He needed the king to grant him authority so that when he walked into Judah and he walked into Jerusalem, he says, by the authority of the king, I do this. A lot of people try to, to do things. They say, oh, I'm just going to marry so-and-so. Have you asked her parents? Have you asked your parents? <laughs> Did you talk to your dad and say, am I ready? Am I worthy of such a woman? Get some, get some authority in your life instead of just, well, I'm just going to get married. I'm just going to do my own thing. You're wasting your life. There are too many people just doing their own thing when here, Nehemiah says, you know what? I need the king's authority to do this. And then he asks for money. <laughs> I need help doing this. Emperors were usually despots. You know what a despot is? They were, they were their own god. They're not easy to approach to, and especially to ask them to give you lots of money. But he knew, before Proverbs 21 was ever written, he knew the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And he turneth his heart uh, whithersoever he wills, as the rivers of water. The heart of the, hand, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord as rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. He believed God could change his mind. I'll give you one guess. I'll give you one, only one, whether God was going to answer that prayer. The only one guess. Do you think God's going to answer that prayer? <laughs> That's what chapter 2 is about. whole book of Nehemiah, when you open it up, it opens and closes with prayer. You find him praying here in chapter 12, he's praying again. He seems to know the need for prayer. He knew he was far too weak, unable to do this great task. He saw a big job to do. He was no superhero like Mr. Incredible. He was not able to, you know, carry 30 people on his back. He was going to go into this thing. He said, I need God's help. I need the king's help. I need people to work with me. I need it all to come together. I need to do this impossible thing. But he knew Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. We had a men's meeting yesterday. And by the way, if you missed it, you missed one of the best. It was an awesome, awesome morning. But I was talking to Mikey, and we were talking about verses that we were memorizing. And he said, I like Philippians 4.13. I said, why do you like that? He says, I just like it. I says, Think about it, it's like a little child, and the dad says to the son, says, see that wheelbarrow full of dirt? I need you to take it over there to the end of the estate and dump it over the ledge there, and then bring me back. And the kid goes, I can't do it, dad. And the dad comes along and says, let's do it together. And that boy's just carrying it along, and he's got, you know, 80 kilos or 100 kilos of dirt, and the kid can't pick up 10. But I can do all things through Christ who comes along and strengthens me. He believed that before it was ever written.
Nehemiah believed in the power of prayer. You know what Ephesians 3.20 says? Now unto God who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Hey, prayer still works if you and I will come to God like a beggar. If we worship God as good. If we'll spend a lot of time doing inventory and confessing to God where we have done wrong. You could, if I asked you, I said, did so-and-so hurt you? And I said, all right, tell me how they hurt you. I bet you could go through 30 things. And if I asked, okay, how have you hurt them? Oh, I can think of two. <laughs> Do the self-inventory. And remember all the, that Bible is filled with warnings and promises. It's good to know both of them. Jeremiah, no, Nehemiah is, is clinging to the promises of God. Then you can start making all the requests for the impossible. And that's the greatness of that chapter. Nehemiah sat down and wept, knelt down and prayed. And then he stood up and he worked. Why? Because he had come to God the right way. God wasn't in his back pocket. God wasn't somebody he negotiated with. God was God and he had a right approach to him. Let me ask you some questions for your personal reflection. Number one, what do you feel passionately about? That's what you're going to pray about. And if your team is one point from, the, from, from winning the cup, I know what you're going to be praying for. <laughs> yeah, what you're passionate about is what you'll pray about. Bitcoin. Oh, it's going up. It's up another thousand. I know what you're praying about. Think about it. What are you passionate about? You pray for your family to get saved. You pray for anybody. You pray for problems, for God to intervene. What troubles are you blaming God for that you need to own up to yourself? What are, there, what are, what are the troubles in your life that you won't say, I'm responsible for? What needs to be repaired in your home, in your heart, in your life? family, in our nation. I mean, honestly. Um, come spring, what is, what are, what are, you know what my wife will do? She'll go, the windows need to be washed. All the cobwebs need to be down. She's doing it now. She starts saying, you know, we need to move this furniture there, and then we'll move them back. <laughs> and all that list, you know, all the things that need to be done. What needs to be repaired Emotionally, spiritually, not just normal stuff. Do you believe God could step in and use someone like you to make a difference? Well, you know, my wife, she's a spiritual one. You know, uh, uh, my husband, he's the one that... Would you just say, Lord, use me. Sick and tired of waiting on my husband. <laughs> I'm not going to take over, but I am going to do something to help my home and my family. Will you believe it, that he will? What sins, lastly, won't you deal with? Maybe it's that late-night TV that you just find yourself just addicted to and you won't shut off and it's just showing you stuff that you, don't, you can't even... Listen, once you see those images, they're stuck in there. Amen. What sins won't you deal with? You start to deal with those sins, all of a sudden, God can answer your prayers. Father, we bow before you like beggars. And we worry, we wonder... Why aren't you answering prayer? Prayer is not the most exciting thing. But it is the most powerful. If I ever I attempt to do something just in my own strength and in my own flesh, it will fail. When I fail to pray, I fail. So Lord, just as your disciples gathered around you, saw you praying, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Well, we looked at Nehemiah, and we've looked at the preparation. If anybody's never read the rest of the book, they're going to be surprised. A great thing was accomplished. An impossible thing was done, and it saved a nation. Well, we probably aren't going to all set out and try to save our nation, but we might want to make a difference in our home, in our kids' lives. Maybe in our parents' lives. Maybe 
got so many walls between us and our parents is just a disaster. And we know in our heart of hearts we need to fix things. We need to repair things. They're, they're, they don't deserve to be ignored and to be abandoned. And if there's sin in our lives and there's silence from heaven, it's time we got things right. So, Lord, in this crowd of people, I'm sure there's some to be able to say, Lord, you got me. I didn't want to hear about prayer because I think it's boring. I didn't want a pastor to talk about prayer, but, boy, you got me. Help me, please. Help me be passionate about right things and pray and confess and, and get right into worship because I need you. There's going to be in this room people who've never, ever sensed the presence of God in their life. They go into a building and they sense the building and they sense the atmosphere. They don't know you. I pray they cry out to you right now and say, God, I want to know you. I understand that Jesus died for a sinner like me. And he wants to forgive me. I ask you to forgive me now. Make me your child. I'm so tired of being a puppet of the devil pulled and torn in every direction. I want to serve you now. Lord, I remember praying that kind of prayer 37 years ago. I'll never look back. Would you please make it very clear and simple in every heart this morning what we need to do. May we never get beyond our prayer life. In Jesus' name, amen.